Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. First Samuel 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people, that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, and sent them through all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the, to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Thank you, Brock. We remember once again this morning that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's just ask his help as we look at his word together this morning. Bow with me once again, please. Father, we come to you, and Lord, we do praise you as the God of history. Lord, we, we know that uh, the history of man is filled with, Lord, much horror and um, just expressions of, of rebellion and sin, and yet through all of this, we find that you have purpose to bring forth a bride for your son, to redeem a people 
And we see even in these Old Testament times, Lord, how you were actively working and preparing the way for the true king to come. And we see in these types and shadows, Lord, the reality which is Christ. And so we pray that you help us to to be mindful of your ways, Lord, even as we uh, are tempted to maybe point fingers at those who have gone before and, uh, Lord, wonder at their own sin and foolishness. I pray that we would we would allow your spirit to also um, point the finger at us. And, Lord, that we too would see areas where um, perhaps we, we need to come in humility before you, to, to bow the knee um, before you as our ruler and Lord. And we just pray that your word would go forth with power and conviction. Lord, that my words would be clear and in accordance to all that you have said here. Lord, that the hearts of each one would be able to be attentive, even for the the children and and young ones, Lord, that they too would receive from you this bread from heaven, Lord, your word. And we ask this all in the name of Christ our Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. may be seated, thank you. I know once in a while it's nice to have a little bit of a, a visual look at the area that we're talking about. I did find... One map as we get started here this morning on this surprising deliverance that God brings about through Saul. And uh, the map I have is during the time of the judges. So Micah's going to try to get that up for me here. But um, it, it'll help a little bit just to maybe understand some of the context as we consider our, our passage this morning. So, have you got the factor going on there? And just as we get started, the, the title this morning, I always struggle to know exactly what title to give a specific sermon, but a surprising deliverance. And we may think at first, well, what is all that surprising about it? And we're going to take a little bit of time as we start to consider some of the backstory to Israel at this point. And, and, and I think it will shed some light on uh, the, the surprising nature of this victory that God brings about through Saul. And um, here's the map coming. So you, this is kind of during the time of the judges. So it's maybe not a perfect replica of this specific time. But you can kind of see uh, the, the different colors of various tribes. So Judah... Reuben. The little one in the middle where Jerusalem is, is Benjamin. So that's where Saul is from, where we have Gibeah. Um, Shiloh is not far to the north of there. And then way up here is Jabesh Gilead. I don't, I lost my little laser point for the boys still, but Jabesh Gilead is kind of the top part of Manasseh there. And you have Ammon down here. So you can kind of see they're going to attack Jabesh Gilead. And from Benjamin is where the, the messengers go, where Saul is. And so you kind of get a bit of a visual uh, of the area in which this is all unfolding. Um, some of the places aren't seen that we've seen Gilgal. Uh, they don't have on there, but you have Gath, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, those Philistine cities that we've seen happening throughout this narrative as well. So just a little bit of a, a visual to kind of see where this is all taking place. Um, so you can turn that off, Micah. Thank you. So as I said, to really understand the... The tensions and even the emotion that's going on in this account, we have to back up a little bit. And we're not going to read a large portion. I'll try to summarize it as best you can from Judges 19. Because these same towns um, were at play. Now, 
In Judges 19, we have probably some of the most disturbing content in the Old Testament as the nation of Israel spirals downward until in Judges 19, we basically get an account of a town, Gibeah, which we now know is where Saul is from. And Gibeah is acting a lot like Sodom acted when the angels of the Lord came to Sodom to, to warn Lot about the coming judgment that was going to be brought upon them because of their, wicked, their wickedness and their sin. And in Judges 19, we have this disturbing account of a Levite who comes into Gibeah and he comes with his concubine, his, his wife concubine, and he's going to stay the night. And the men of Gibeah come to him with a desire, he, he tells later, to kill him, but it would seem to engage in some sort of, of sexual immorality. And we have this disturbing account there of how he hides in the house, basically gives these wicked people his uh, concubine, and they abuse her, and in the morning when he goes to leave, she is dead. They have killed her. And in response to that, this Levite actually, again, I know this is disturbing, but this is how the story unfolds, he, in response to this wickedness that's happened in Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, he actually cuts up his deceased concubine and sends pieces of her to the various tribes of Israel as a way to say, look at what has happened. Look at the horror and the, the, the evil behavior that is taking place in our own, among our own tribes. And so all of the tribes come to decide what they're going to do about this wickedness in Gibeah, this Sodom-like behavior. And they decide they're going to tell Benjamin, this tribe, to give them these evil men that they may uh, essentially execute them, punish them for the evil that they have done. Now Benjamin, the tribe, decides instead of handing over the guilty party, they will actually defend them. And so we have this civil war, if you will, where the tribes all come against Benjamin. And we find this throughout Judges 19, 20, 21. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a long portion, actually, that we're given this account. 25,000 um, are, are roughly killed um, by Benjamin. and uh, Sorry, of the tribe of Benjamin. And around 30,000 from the other tribes are killed in this battle. In the end, Benjamin is defeated. They are all but annihilated. And there were two vows the people of Israel made in this time. The first vow was they would not give any of their daughters to marry the tribe of Benjamin because of their sin, because of their evil behavior. The second vow that they made was any tribe or any town that did not come to help and fight against Benjamin, they would go and destroy them. Well, wouldn't you know that the town in which they found did not send anyone to help was actually Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead refused to send people to fight against Benjamin in this, uh, really this, this just war, if you will. And so what they did is they marched over and they all but destroyed Jabesh Gilead. But they didn't want to destroy the 12 tribes completely. They didn't want Benjamin to be completely removed lest there be a, a tribe short. Now Benjamin, there was only a, a handful of men left. There was no wives for them. So they had vowed not to give their wives to this tribe. So what do they do? They take 400 unmarried women from Jabesh Gilead. They give them to Benjamin in this very bizarre story. 
And the other way that the tribe of Benjamin was allowed to get wives was to go to Shiloh and during the feast take uh, wives from the, the festivities that were happening. There's this very bizarre story. But this all happened in the not-so-distant history from where we find ourselves this morning. And as you begin to understand some of those dynamics, you could just imagine the tensions and the, 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 the family dynamics. I mean, we think that our families have problems and that our family reunions are awkward. You could just imagine the, the, the other tribes now communicating and dealing with Benjamin or dealing with men from Jabesh Gilead. These were seen as essentially traitors, as those who had been unfaithful, who had failed to uphold the righteousness of God that the law demands. And so it's with that disturbing and yet historical background that we begin to see some of the uh, very ironic tensions that would have taken place. And I uh, I want to do our best to just look at this chapter together, though we won't get through it in great detail. But first then, let us consider the, the looming threat that stands before this town, Jabesh Gilead. It seems to be of the tribe of Manasseh. So there were two tribes, you had Joseph and then his sons, uh, Benjamin and Manasseh, uh, the, the two half-tribes, if you will. So I couldn't exactly determine which Jabesh Gilead, either Gad or Manasseh, but we understand that they had this history not so long ago. They are slowly recovering as a town. Now we have Nahash and Ammonite threatening them with a siege. And when they come to him and say, well, make a treaty with us. Let's figure out a way that we can resolve this peacefully. Let's not go to war and kill each other. We see this cruel response from Nahash, the Ammonite. And the Ammonites are actually distant cousins to the Israelites. These are the descendants of Lot. Lot, as you recall, was the nephew of Abraham. So these are actually also somewhat relatives. But this very cruel man, uh, Nahash, no doubt still angry that they had been dispossessed when the Jews came into the land, wanting to recover this land back, tells them, well, we'll make a treaty with you. We will gouge out all of the right eyes, all of your right eyes, and let you live, basically, was the deal. And for us, we, we think right, left, I mean, either one is obviously bad, but in this mind, the right eye specifically is seen as the most important, the most valuable. This is a direct way to, to cripple these people so that they might still be useful for labor and for work, but not able really to fight or defend themselves. And some even said that in that time, uh, when they were in battle, they would hold the shield with the left hand. And so your, your, your left eye would be somewhat blocked by the shield. You depended on your right eye in battle to look beyond the shield and to engage your enemy. It's, it's basically rendering them completely defenseless, but still would be able to carry out some form of labor and responsibility. And so this is the, the deal that Nahash comes up with. And he obviously is assuming they probably won't get help. They're kind of up in the, the, the corner region, quite a ways from some of the other tribes, especially the stronger tribes like Judah were quite a ways away. And they had their own problems to worry about with the Philistines on their border. So they ask him for some time to find help or to let, let the other tribes know they, they need help. 
And I'm guessing at this point, we could just imagine uh, for Jabesh Gilead as well, wondering if they would actually receive any help. Because in the not-so-distant past, they were seen as traitors. They, they had failed to come to the aid of the other tribes when they needed them. They chose to sit on their hands. And now here they are in a desperate situation. They desperately need help. They don't have the ability to defend themselves. They can't fight off this, this King Nahash of the Ammonites. But we find as the story unfolds, the messengers are in fact sent out. And they come to, lo and behold, Gibeah. Probably a good first choice because you would have had various family connections between Gibeah and between Jabesh Gilead. There would have been grandpas and grandmas. Remember, their, their daughters were taken and given to be wives of the, Benjamin, the, the tribe of Benjamin. So it makes sense that they would come. This also helps us understand why the people of Gibeah respond with, with the tears and the weeping. This isn't just another tribe that's being threatened. This isn't just another community. It's, it's, often, it's probably their family members, their, their cousins, their grandpas, their grandmas, maybe their, their moms and dads. There would have been very close family connections between these two communities. And so we have this threat, this looming threat that stands against this community, Jabesh Gilead. And if we could summarize the situation at this point, we could say that we have a community or a people who are in a, in, a, in a serious crisis, but who have offended and wronged all of their closest family members with the exception of the tribe of Benjamin. And the question is raised, can salvation come? Will salvation come to such a people? They are obviously in many ways undeserving they, they have greatly sinned against their, their countrymen. And this question is raised, will salvation come? And there's a few things that I, I thought, even as we consider this unique uh, crisis for Jabesh, even in our own lives, we could, we could think and, and ask the question, are there people in our lives that if they were to find themselves in crisis, we would naturally be unwilling to go to and help? And we probably don't have to think very hard about that. A lot of times, even in our own families, there are those who have, who have violated trust. They have said hurtful things. There are people who maybe uh, wronged us and slandered us. And, and if they were to come and ask us for help in a desperate situation, in our pride, we would naturally want to say, you know what, don't even bother asking. I'm, I'm not willing to come. And, and, and that's very much the situation here. It would seem that they will not get help because they are a people who have proven themselves unreliable and unfaithful. But I think even beyond Jabesh Gilead, is there not here a picture of even the human race? If we, if we are going to be so quick to, to judge one another and to write people off as undeserving of our help, we have to also keep in mind that there's a, a sense in which as humanity, we stand in far worse shape than Jabesh Gilead. We had far more on the line than simply losing an eye before a holy God whom we have offended. And the the, the coming judgment upon us is soon. It's looming over us. It's a place of eternal suffering in hell, separated from God, 
No more opportunity for grace. No more opportunity for, for responding to his offer of salvation. In many ways, all of humanity is pictured something like Jabesh Gilead, an undeserving people in a desperate crisis. And so the question is raised, will there be salvation? And so we move on from there through, first of all, the looming threat. Secondly, we see the surprising deliverance that God brings about. Saul coming in from the field behind the oxen. Now we may think, wait a minute, wasn't Saul just appointed king in the previous section that we looked at? Wasn't he just announced to Israel he is the king that God has chose? Samuel had anointed him. Samuel had even proven by lot that this was God's choice. And the people cried, long live the king. There were some who had determined to follow after Saul and walk with him. Others who were worthless fellows and said, how can this man save us? And we may think, shouldn't have Saul at that point begun acting like a king? And we find that for whatever reason... He goes back to the field. I can just imagine Saul, uh, you know, going back to his father who has a lot of work to be done. The fields need to be plowed. The the grain needs to be gathered. Yes, the donkeys are back, but we still have much to do. And he's like, you know, you can play king later on, Saul. Right now, I need you to go out to the field. I need you to work the ground and get these things done. And so we find Saul uh, in this place of farming once again, coming back from the field. It almost reminded me of of Peter, who, when after the Lord had called him, at various times we find him going back to the fishing boat, going back to his previous occupation, and uh, instead of setting his hand to what God had given him. But no doubt, because Israel had never had a king, and Saul knew nothing about what a king ought to be doing at this point, really, other than God told him he would, he would defend the people of Israel, he comes in and notices the weeping and simply asks, what's going on? What, what's happened? And as the news of the situation in Jabesh is told to Saul, we're told in verse 6, the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. And so we have again this, this working of the Holy Spirit in the life of Saul. We saw that last week as well as he prophesied with the prophets and the spirit of God changed this man, making him fit more and more to be the king of Israel. Here again, we see the Spirit of God now rushing upon Saul. So this isn't just Saul conjuring up in himself some sort of of vengeance against his enemies, but this is the Spirit of God moving this man to action, to, to unite the people, to call for them to come to the aid of Jabesh Gilead. And how does he choose to tell the other tribes of this situation. Well, what initially seems like just a random uh, decision from Saul, when you connect it back to the history of this town, again, it is, is a bit shocking, and I don't know if maybe the, the best choice for Saul to do this, but he chooses to take one of the oxen, cut them up, and send them to the other tribes. Now, as we just saw in, in Judges, from this same town... A Levite did this, not with oxen, but with his concubine. And Saul doing this with the oxen, no doubt would ring in the minds and hearts of the Israelites this similar situation. This was very provocative, I would say, of Saul to do. But God moves upon the hearts of Israel and they come out. And Saul tells them, come out after Saul and Samuel, lest it be done to your oxen. 
And so we have this surprising deliverance for Jabesh Gilead, the undeserving town of a formerly traitorous act. Now their salvation rising from no place less than Gibeah, the very community that Israel once came against to all but destroy because of their evil behavior. And this is where God chooses to raise up a deliverer from Israel, also raising up the first king of Israel. And you begin to feel some of the animosity between the tribes because of the way that God has set this up. There is something of a rebuke in this, I think, for the 12 tribes as well. Uh, Sometimes God, as we've seen, giving us what we want, also in granting that, will rebuke us for our false motive in asking. They were not to ask for a king uh, in the way they did. They had rejected God. So there's a bit of a rebuke for the tribes here as well. If you want a king, fine. How about I raise up a, qu- a king from one of the most despised communities in your, in your nation and he will rule over you. But we do see a sense of God's grace and, and mercy in this too. A situation that was formerly uh, a terrible blot against the the 12 tribes now becomes a means of salvation, now becomes a way in which God is going to bring about deliverance for Jabesh. And there's almost a sense of the gospel message that's given to Jabesh. They are told by the messengers tomorrow, um, before the, by the time the sun is hot in in verse 9, you shall have salvation. So remember the question at the start, can such a people be saved? Can there be deliverance for such a people? Here we have the deliverer stepping forward, Saul, anointed by the Spirit, and the good news, the gospel we could say, being proclaimed to them, yes, you will have salvation. We are going to come to your aid. And I think in this we also see the, as God has consistently throughout the scriptures gone about the salvation of man in a way that is shocking and unexpected, even in a way that may seem foolish to us, God is pleased to bring about salvation. This is a principle that runs throughout the entire scripture, and we find that it points us forward onto Christ. This is, I know we look at uh, 1 Corinthians quite often, but I can't help but reference it, that in 1 Corinthians one twenty-six. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he's like, think about your circumstances, he says. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to a privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. What is regarded as nothing to set aside what is regarded as something. So that no one can boast in his presence. He is the reason you have something so that no one can, uh, sorry, he is the reason that you have a relationship with Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And Paul even says of himself that his preaching, his preaching was not in persuasive words and wisdom. It was a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not be based on human wisdom but on the power of God. And this principle 
applies throughout redemptive history. God continuing to bring about a salvation for his people in a way that they don't expect, they may not even like, and yet God does it so that it is evident to all that he has worked for for his people. He has brought about this by his own design. It's not by accident that Jesus comes from Nazareth, a nothing place, even a despised place. You remember as uh, Nathaniel meets Jesus and he hears that Jesus had come from Nazareth and his response is, can anything good come from this place? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Surely the Messiah would not come from such a terrible location. And yet it pleased God in humility to bring forth Christ in a way that confounds the wisdom of this age and leaves the philosopher and the wise ones scratching their heads in wonder at the ways of God. And this is so that, as Paul said, God receives the glory and the, and the praise. We are, are stripped of our ground for boasting. And I think in a similar way, we see God taking from uh, Saul, taking from the people in this point, any ground for boasting. And we have this surprising deliverance. And then we have finally also the, the gracious victory that God works. So Saul has sent out these pieces of his oxen. The, there is a, the fear of the Lord comes upon the people and they come out as one man, we're told, about 30,000 from Judah and then about 300,000, we're told, from the other tribes. So a massive horde of the 12 tribes come to the aid of Jabesh Gilead. And God, we're told, brings about an incredible salvation. We find uh, in verse 11, Saul puts the people in three companies and they come into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So it was such a defeat that there wasn't even one pair of the Ammonites left together. They were scattered uh, into, the, into the four winds. And God then renews this kingdom through Samuel. Uh, we find that Samuel... Um, oh, sorry. First of all, there is this idea that those who stood against Saul in verse, or sorry, chapter 10, when they appointed Saul's king, remember there were some who were worthless and they said, how can this man lead us? How can this man be the king? And they, they cast doubt into the hearts of the people. Now, after this great victory, they're saying, let's find those people and let's execute them for their treachery. Uh, you see, again, these parallels, almost with the, the former way in which they dealt with Jabesh Gilead. They punished them for their disloyalty. But here we see a reversal as well. We see mercy and grace extended to them because Saul says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And so Saul says, No, I'm not seeking vengeance on the naysayers at this point. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice in what God has done. And Samuel says, Okay, let's go then to Gilgal. And there renew the kingdom. Gilgal being the place where Israel initially came into the promised land. And and, and initially began to experience the Lord's blessing as the people brought into the land. And so they they head back to Gilgal. And there they formally uh, crown Saul as king. 
and there's a sacrifice of peace offerings before the Lord. And we're told there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoice greatly. And we have this incredible account of God's deliverance through Saul, followed with sacrifice to God and great rejoicing. Now here again, we see something of the, 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 the wonder and beauty of God's mercy. We started with a people who really, in, by all estimations, were undeserving of any help from the other tribes. They had a terrible history uh, when they were called upon to not come to the aid of the other 12 tribes and uphold righteousness. Now, through God's intervention, we have not only the deliverance of this community, these people, but we have the unifying of the 12 tribes like they have never been before, and God establishing Saul as king and the people rejoicing greatly and praising him. So, we can think about the mercy of God in this picture to the undeserving and the faithless. And as I said, this should be something of a call to us as well as we see God time and time again extend mercy to those who we would think do not deserve mercy. As the followers of Christ, we are called also to exemplify this sort of love even to our enemies, even to those whom we would rather not help. And we can think of uh, Jesus' words in, in Matthew 5, 43, speaking to his followers in our, in our reaction to those who maybe we see as enemies, those who we see as undeserving of our help. He said in Matthew 5, 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. And it's a good call for us to say, okay, we must be mindful of the mercy that God has poured out to us through Christ. A mercy that was undeserving. And so we too can be merciful and, and, and be willing to help those in need, even if they had at some point perhaps offended us and, 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 and done wrong. We are to be praying for their repentance. We're to be praying that they would come to, to, to know Christ, if they don't know the Lord, to, to know Him as Savior and Lord. Um, you know, and it could be in, in, in the workplace, uh, a co-worker that is often rude. And the temptation for us is to, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth sort of idea. And yet we're called to be ready and willing to help and serve those who maybe we feel don't deserve it. Because after all, in Christ, we have this incredible statement from Paul in Romans 5. While we were helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we, receiving this sort of of grace as helpless enemies of God, being reconciled to him through Christ, Christ laying down his life for us, that we might be forgiven and brought near to God, not only having our debt of sin removed 
in Christ, but also given the righteousness of Christ by faith. And uh, you know, we talked about this with the children a bit this morning. On Wednesday, we were talking about this as well. The perfect obedience of Christ. Do you realize the, the riches that Christ pours to us by faith through his work on the cross is not just that your sins are forgiven, as wonderful and marvelous as that is, but we are also brought into the riches of his inheritance. Paul says, made co-heirs with Christ so that his riches, his righteousness is deposited into your account. Not only is your account brought to zero from your debts, but his riches are poured in and you are counted a child of the living God. And in response, we ought to be a gracious people, ready to forgive, ready to come to the aid of those who the Lord brings across our path and who we're able to, to help in Christ's name. But we see, ultimately, a picture pointing us to Christ our Lord. How God, time and time again, delights to bring about salvation through unexpected means, even despised means. I'm sure nobody at, at the particular uh, time when Samuel anointed Saul, there, there would have been mixed emotions. This guy's from where? From Gibeah? Of the tribe of Benjamin? The, those traitors? Those, those guys who killed, you know, 25,000 of our brothers and sisters not that long ago. This is where God's going to bring up a king and savior for us. And we see that this points us even to the design of God from a cattle trough, from the town of Nazareth, the, the Galilean, the, the, the one who, who was the, the son of Mary, and we don't even know who his father is. This is the Messiah. This is the one who is going to deliver the people. This is the descendant of David, the king of Israel. God delights through the foolishness of this message to save those who will put their hope in him. And finally then, as we close, and considering the response to God's deliverance, the joy and the celebration and the feasting of the people, this is something that in Christ we also experience in part in this life, the joy of forgiveness, of fellowship with, with saints. And we enjoy that even Sunday mornings as we gather together and we're visiting and we break bread together. And there's a sense of feasting and rejoicing in what Christ has done. He has won the victory for us. But we know this is also looking forward to a day yet to come when God renews the heavens and the earth. Samuel renewed the kingdom in regards to this earthly reign of Saul. But Christ is coming once again in, in the, at the appointed time to renew the land and the sky. And we are told that we ourselves will be brought up into the renewal of the kingdom, a new heavens, a new earth. Paul said in Romans 8 that the, the, the current sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption as sons, the redemption 
of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this small picture of the kingdom being renewed and established after this great victory will be fully seen in Christ as he returns, the the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who has the the, the people following and the the, the clothing of white as we read in our time of confession. And, And in Christ, the heavens and the earth will be transformed, our bodies will be glorified, and we there will feast with the king and rejoice with the saints throughout all the ages and proclaim Christ has done it. And this is our hope. This is what we are pressing on towards. And so let us be faithful as citizens of this kingdom under Christ. And if you have not bowed the knee to Christ, if you have not turned from your sin, repented of your rebellion against him, and received his forgiveness and mercy that he purchased at the cross and and vindicated in his resurrection, if you have not received this mercy, then I urge you to plead with God. Pray to God, even now in your heart, even as the publican would pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man went home justified that day. Because you see, as we look unto Christ and receive from him, then we are given his very righteousness and we are brought near to the Father. And so let us close there this morning as we... uh, our service, I will pray, and uh, we'll pick up again next week. So bow with me, please. Father, we, Lord, we are amazed at your long-suffering, that you have continued to endure with humanity. Lord, not wavering from the plan that was set forward even before the foundations of the earth, Lord, that man would not be utterly lost to their sin and rebellion, but there would be a Savior come into the world coming to an undeserving and rebellious people, offering forgiveness and mercy, offering victory, um, Lord, over our sin. And so we, we praise you how Scripture does indeed point us forward to Christ. And we see these many different uh, times in which you have delivered your people. But Lord, we thank you most of all for the great deliverance that you have won in Christ our Lord. And I pray you help us to be faithful, to be steadfast, to hold on to this hope that we do not yet see fully, uh, but only in part. And Lord, that we too would be eager to not only serve and pray for our enemies, but Lord, we would be ready and willing to share the gospel, the good news of his salvation with all who will hear. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.